Well, good morning. Good to see you. My name is Blake. If you're a guest here, welcome. And I love to buy local. I like to buy local whenever I can, support local. And occasionally I'll study in a coffee shop or maybe meet one of you in a coffee shop. And there's one of our local coffee shops and there's this little sign. And I've got, about, I've got the bladder of a 90-year-old woman. Text Jackson says, amen. And so I pass this sign a lot. And this sign says, don't throw your cups in this trash can. And I just want to confess to you that every time I pass the trash, I want to throw my cup <laughs> in that trash can. It says, use the other trash can. The problem's not the sign. The problem's my own sinful heart, my remaining sin, my rebellious nature, where I was just fine until I saw the sign, and the sign makes me want to disobey. And what we're going to learn this morning in Romans 7 is that the rules, the commandments, the law is not the problem. Our sin is the problem. Romans 7 is the most debated, most disputed, most contested passage in Romans. As I was studying this week, one commentator says, no part of Romans, in fact, has been the object of so much scrutiny and the source of so much confusion as what Paul writes here in chapter 7. In fact, another commentator in the footnotes said, if a preacher's going to preach a disputed passage like this, he ought to plan on at least doubling, if not tripling, the amount of preparation time for his sermon. And that would be really nice, but Sundays just keep coming. So I can't, not afford that opportunity. And so I just want to warn you, we got some heavy lifting to do this morning. I know some of you are like, haven't we been heavy lifting the entire time in Romans? And really the controversy in Romans 7 is about who is the I? Who is the I of Romans 7. And there's a lot of nuanced views, but the basic question is, does Romans 7 describe a Christian's experience or a non-Christian's experience? And good cases can be made for both sides, and there are godly and sharp scholars on both sides as well. When I was at seminary at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, one of my favorite professors, his name was Tom Schreiner. He's actually coming here at next year's Abilene Theology Conference. So next September, he's going to be joining us. And I had the privilege of taking a class with him on Romans. So we spent a whole semester on the Greek text of Romans. He had written this thousand page commentary we worked through and it was, it was a blast. Well, he shared with us in Romans 7, once we got to chapter 7, that when he was publishing that commentary, he submitted three different chapters on Romans chapter 7. So he wrote his commentary, submitted it, Changed his view, submitted chapter 7 again. Changed his view again, submitted chapter 7. And then later, that was 1998, he changed his view. And then just recently, he changed his view again. <laughs> so I share that with just to show how complicated and complex this passage is. In fact, many of my heroes hold to a different view of Romans 7 than I do. Most of the early church held a view similar to mine, but many of my heroes in the Reformation tradition disagree with me, and so I'm here with humility disagreeing with the likes of Martin Luther, John Calvin, J.C. Ryle, J.I. Packer, John Piper, Tim Keller. Going back to the 4th century, Augustine held my view, but then towards the end of his life, he wrote this book called Retractions, <laughs> and he changed his view. But I think Romans 7 is about a non-Christian. I think the I we're going to read about is Paul looking back on his pre-Christian life. But he's not just talking about Paul's own personal history. He's looking back retrospectively 
and representatively. It'll make more sense as we jump into the text, but I think he's looking back from a Christian perspective on his life as a Jew under the law. But not just his own, he's representatively looking back as his life as a non-Christian, as a Jew, but representative of all Jews without the spirit under the law. So retrospectively and representatively. He uses the personal pronoun I, I think, in a representative way, and that was a common literary technique of the day. Ancient rhetoric called it speech in character. So it's not always strictly biographical. It's a rhetorical device. So again, I think it's the Christian Paul looking back on his non-Christian life as a representative Jew. And the key to interpreting Romans 7, like the key to interpreting all scripture, is context. The rule of interpretation is the same as the rule of real estate. Location, location, location. And Romans chapter 7 comes after Romans chapter 6 and before Romans chapter 8. Say, duh, well, that's actually going to be really important. We read it in context. These verses this morning are parentheses. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of debate, a lot of ink spilt over these verses. But the main issue here is the law. And he's talking about the Jewish law, the law of Moses, the Torah, the body of commandments given to the nation of Israel. Romans 7 mentions the law 30 times, over 30 times. And here's the point. The law does not transform. The law doesn't actually stop sin, contrary to Jewish belief. The law of Moses cannot justify. We saw that in Romans 3 and 4. Now we learn that the law of Moses cannot sanctify. And so really, however one takes the identity of this I, the point is the same. The Jewish law is powerless to rescue people from sin. Maybe you were here last week. John Bunyan said, run, John, run. The law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. Tells us what to do, but it doesn't help us get there. So let's look then, Romans chapter 7. If you've got one of our pew Bibles, it's page 887. If you need a Bible, feel free to take that one. Let's read together God's word. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to the end of the chapter. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. I serve the law of sin. Let's pray again one more time. Lord, we come to you thankful for the clarity of your word and that so many passages are very clear and quite straightforward. But when we come across passages that are a little more complex, we need your help. And so I ask, Spirit, would you open our hearts, make us receptive to go deep in your word, to understand who we were and to understand who we are now. Lord, I pray for local churches in Abilene that this morning the gospel would be preached with clarity. I pray for Redeemer Church this morning that the gospel would go forward, that people would be saved, that the church there would be built up. I pray for their elders. I pray for their holiness. Pray for this Abilene Theology Conference that you would encourage and edify and even correct many in our community through hosting this event. Continue to pray for Judah McDermott. Thank you that he's at home now with his parents, Brooke and Aaron. Pray for Robbie Golson that you would heal up her side and her leg. Pray that we as a body would grow in our love for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would grow in our love for one another. Help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, Paul really answers two questions in these verses. Number one, is the law sin? And number two, does the law bring death? So first question is the law sin? That's verses 7 to 12. Read with me again, verse 7. It says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So we can understand why Paul asked the question, is the law sin? If you've been tracking with Romans so far, and I hope you have, I hope you're reading it, I hope you're reading ahead, we've seen a lot of negative comments about the law. Going back to chapter 3, that no one can be justified by the law, verse 20, and through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Or chapter 4, 15, the law brings wrath. Or chapter 5, verse 20, the law even increases sin. Or chapter 6, 14, we're no longer under the law. And so it's a good question. Well, is the law sin? And the answer is emphatically no, it's not. But, or to use Paul's language there, yet the law does define sin. The law makes sin explicit. The law becomes a yardstick for sin. Ignorance is bliss until the law comes and helps us discover the real power of sin. And he mentions one commandment in particular. I wouldn't have known what coveting was if the law hadn't come and said, you shall not covet. Now all of a sudden I know. And it makes sense that the 10th commandment would be the culprit of the killing. You know, Paul was a Pharisee. And if we know anything from the Gospels, we know that the Pharisees were really good at externals, weren't they? Checking off the boxes. And you think about even just the 10 commandments, the heart of the law of Moses 
fairly easy to check off many of the external. So don't make idols. Okay, check. Don't murder. Check. Don't lie. Check. Don't steal. Check. And on and on. Then you come to the 10th commandment. And all of a sudden we're turned inward. Do not covet. Do not have inordinate loves. Do not desire something too strongly. And all of a sudden it's not so easy to check. And we get to the motive level. And I think as Paul reflected on this 10th commandment, you shall not covet, he came to see that it is the basic sin. It is the root sin. In fact, it lies behind the breaking of every other commandment. Coveting is wanting something so much that you'll dishonor God to get it or you'll dishonor God when you don't get it. It's loving the wrong thing too much. It's disordered loves. And so you'll break the the ninth commandment. You'll lie. But behind it is coveting because you'll lie because you want to get something or you want to avoid something, whether it be saving face or maybe it's a good reputation and so you want a good reputation you covet a good reputation so much that you'll lie to keep it or you'll lie to get it or maybe it's stealing eighth commandment you'll steal because you want something too much you act on your covetousness you desired it so strongly you would steal to get it or adultery you commit adultery because you want you desire you covet pleasure or power or escape or whatever it may be You murder because you want life without this person. And so to break the 10th commandment is really behind all the commandments. And to break the 10th commandment is really to break the first commandment. No other gods because you see your God is that which you want most. Which is why Ephesians 5.5 and Colossians 3.5 say that covetousness is idolatry. The 10th commandment is the first commandment. And so Paul's world is wrecked. As the commandment comes. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So the law reveals sin. It shows us our need. It uses the commandment to even produce more sin, it says. And here we have again, notice sin is described as this power. Sin seizes an opportunity. Remember back in chapter 3, we're all under sin, under the power of sin. So the commandment comes and it produces more sin. I see the sign that says, don't throw the cup in the trash, and I want to throw the cup in the trash. And you get it if you have kids. Maybe you've seen the experience where you put kids in a room and there's this big red button on the other wall. Whatever you do, children, do not touch the big red button. What do they want to do? I've shared with you before, Augustine. Augustine describes this in his book, Confessions. The world calls this contra-suggestibility. The Bible calls it sin. Augustine relates his experience when he was young. He says, near our vineyard, there was a pear tree loaded with fruits. Though the fruit was not particularly attractive, either in color or taste, I and some other youths conceived the idea of shaking the pears off this tree and carrying them away. We set out late at night and stole all the fruit we could carry. And this was not to feed ourselves. We may have tasted a few, but then threw the rest to the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. I had plenty of better pears of my own. I only took these 
in order that I might be a thief. Once I had eaten them, I threw them away, and all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. You see, the law stirs up sin in unbelieving hearts. And Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. But wait a minute, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. How could he be alive apart from the law? He would have been trained in the law from birth. What does he mean there? Well, some scholars think that what he means is he thought he was alive, thought he was okay, and then the conviction and condemnation of the law comes in, and now he's dead. But I actually think he's speaking representatively here. Yes, it is Paul's story, but I think he's also conflating his story with the story of Israel and even the story of Adam. Think about it. We know the story of Adam. Adam and Eve are doing fine. The commandment comes. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, what do they do? They break that command. And what happens? Death is the result. Once alive, apart from the law, then death comes. But even Israel, think about Israel's story. Israel's formed as a nation, freed from Egypt, given the law. But what happens? The commandment, you shall not make any carved image, leads, that's Exodus 20, leads to Exodus 32, the making of a carved image, golden calf. And what happens? 3,000 people die. The arrival of the commandments, whether it's at Sinai or in the garden, leads to death. And the same in Paul's experience. Look at verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see, the law of Moses promised life to the Jews. Listen to Leviticus 18 verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he'll live by them. I am the Lord. So they would have earned life if they would have kept the law perfectly. Problem is, there's only been one person who's ever kept the law perfectly. The law proved death because sin seized it, deceived him, and killed him. And then verse 12 starts with, so, then, the law is good. The law is holy. How is it good? It's good, and that through it, sin deceives him and kills him. That's the connection. Sin is deceiving us and killing us, so it's good and holy. It's good and holy and that has a negative purpose in God's plan. It's not that the law is negative. It's that God has a negative purpose for it. He says the same in Galatians 3 when he's talking about us not being under the law. He asks then in Galatians 3.21, well, is the law then contrary to the promises? Certainly not. We need to understand God's purpose in giving the law. It wasn't for life. He says if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It was never given. The law was never given to give life. God's purpose in giving the law was always to show us our need. It was always a negative purpose. The law is good in God's plan. It was to imprison all under sin. It was to point us to Jesus Christ. The law is not sinful but it does have a negative role in God's plan of showing us our sin. So verse 12 really answers the first question. Is the law sin? Verse 12, no, it's not. It's holy. It's righteous. It's good. Second question then, does the law cause death? Does the law bring death? Look at verse 13. Speaking of the law, did that which is good then bring death to me? 
By no means. It wasn't the law. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So again, a great question. Okay, all this negative purpose. Well, is it the cause of death? No, it's not the cause of death. Sin is the cause of death. We saw that in Romans 6.23. The good law causes sin to become sinful beyond measure. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law defines sin. Same thing he says earlier. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, it's present tense, but present tense does not always indicate present time. I don't think this can be referring to a Christian. Notice again how strong that language is here. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. This can't be a believer because believers are no longer of the flesh. We're of the spirit. And again, this is where context becomes so important. How did Paul just describe believers? Well, look at with me at 7 verse 5. Chapter 7, verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We were of the flesh, but now we are of the spirit. To look ahead at where we're going, look at chapter 8, verse 4. Again, context is key. How he describes a believer. Are we of the flesh? Chapter 8, verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh, this is unbelievers. They set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, that's believers. They set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And then skipping down to chapter 8, verse 9, notice what he says. You, brothers and sisters, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You're not of the flesh, Christian. You're of the spirit. Romans 7, 14, speaking of an unbeliever. Notice how Galatians 5 puts it. We belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We are a new creation of the spirit, not of the flesh anymore. We used to be. And so saying that Christians are of the flesh would contradict what scripture says elsewhere. Notice though, that's not all. He doesn't just say we're of the flesh. He says we're sold under sin. If this were speaking of a Christian, it would flat contradict what he said in the previous chapter. Flip over to Romans 6 verse 2. How does he describe believers there? He says we died to sin. Look at chapter 6 verse 14. Are we slaves? Are we sold under sin? 6.14 says... Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Look at chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin 
have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you're not sold under sin, you're set free from it. You've now become not slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once were presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things to which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Christians are not sold under sin. We used to be, praise God, no longer, but now no longer. Now we're freed from the power of sin. Notice what he's not saying here. He's not saying that he still sins. He's not saying he still battles sins. He's not saying he fights sin. That's true. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he's of the flesh and sold under sin. This is not an internal angst that we all experience as Christians. This is an externally imposed slavery under sin. And then in verses 15 to 20, he kind of unpacks what he means to be sold under sin. Chapter 7, verse 15. You tracking with me? I know we're in the weeds here. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, law of Moses, that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This person does not have the ability to do good. Romans 3, speaking of unbelievers, no one does good. Verse 19, for I do, the, do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do, not, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Here he's unpacking what it means to be of the flesh. It's what he said in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one does good. This person is powerless. This isn't a battle here. This is defeat. He knows what he ought to do, but he's completely unable to do it. Describing an unbeliever like he does in chapter 8, verse 7. Look over there. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So again, this is not a picture of a Christian's battle against sin. This is a picture of an unbeliever totally defeated by sin. If this were about a Christian, it would be at odds with the vision we're given in Romans 6 and in Romans 8 and the rest of the New Testament. A person who keeps on doing evil is not a regenerate Christian. Look at verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. 
says he delights in the law of God. And that's why some people think, well, this has got to be a Christian. Well, many, many a Jew delight in the law of God. We read from Psalm 119. Uh, we will read in Romans chapter 10 that the, the Jews had a zeal for God, but it wasn't according to knowledge. But he says there's this other law, this other force at work, and it's making him captive to the power of sin. Again, chapter 6 says we're freed from the power of sin. And he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And he can't help but interject a thanksgiving here. Spoiler, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the solution. And then he ends and he summarizes the whole chapter at the end of verse 25 because the main point of the chapter is not the solution, not yet, that's coming in chapter 8, but the inability of the law to transform. And so he says, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And that word serve is the same word for slavery we read in chapter 6. I am in slavery to the law of sin, he says in chapter 7. That would contradict what we read in chapter 6 and what we will see in chapter 8. All right, so let me, let me zoom out here. Is this about the normal Christian struggle with sin? My answer is no. Let me summarize again three main reasons why I don't think this is normal Christian struggle with sin. Number one is this whole battle is a battle with what? The law of Moses. The whole battle is a battle with the Jewish law. That's what Paul means this entire chapter. That's the way we started, if you remember last week. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. Freed from the law. Chapter 7, verse 6. Freed, delivered from the law of Moses that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit. And so why would a Christian who has been freed from the law of Moses struggle to obey the law of Moses? It's a picture of a Jew under the law of Moses, not the Christian. He even said in chapter 6, verse 14, Christians are no longer under the law, but under grace. And so why would a new covenant believer who's been freed from the law, who's died to the law, then wrestle with keeping the law of Moses? That's number one. Number two, why I think it's not a Christian experience, but the experience of a Jew under the law is the absence of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? You know how many mentions the Holy Spirit gets in Romans chapter 7? Seven, our passage this morning, 7, 7 to 25, zero. Do you know how many times the Holy Spirit will be mentioned in Romans chapter 8? 21 times. Look again at Romans 7 verse 5. The structure here is really important. Romans 7 verse 5 is a preview of what we just did this morning. Romans 7 5 is a preview of Romans 7, 7 to 25. Romans 6 is a preview of what we will see in the weeks to come. Romans 8, 1 to 17. Read it with me again. Romans 7, 5, about the unbeliever and their struggle with the law. Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's what we just read. What we will see in Romans 8 is verse 6. But now... We're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Romans 8, 1 to 17 are going to show us what it means to serve in the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That's why chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is therefore now. There's a transition coming in Romans 8. Romans 8 is so glorious when you read it right after Romans chapter 7 because Romans, the dilemma of Romans 7 is found in the solution of Romans 8. We even see that. Look at the end there. Look at 7.23. Notice the language here. 
723, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Notice chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin. There it is, same language. 8, 2 and following is the solution of 7. It's concluded in 723. So that's the second reason. First reason, New Covenant Christians aren't called, we're freed from the law of Moses, so why would we struggle to obey the law of Moses? That was last week's sermon. Number two, the absence of the Holy Spirit. Number three is the context that we've seen. Chapter six and chapter eight are about the normal Christian life. And you'll notice it's largely victorious. Freed from the power of sin. Will we continue to battle sin? Yes and amen. If you've been here long, you know that. We'll talk about that in chapter 8. We already talked about that in chapter 6. So this isn't talking about the the fact that there is no longer a battle of sin. We will battle sin. In fact, the language of chapter 8 will be put it to death. We will have to get violent with our sin until the Lord comes or he brings us home. That's not what chapter 7 is about, though. Again, chapter 7 is not about a battle. The chapter 7 is about a total defeat. Christians are those who are forgiven of their sin and empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit. This isn't attention. This would be a total contradiction. New Covenant Christians are forgiven of their sin, filled with the Spirit, no longer wretched. We were, but no longer wretched. Now we are saints by virtue of the work of Christ. New creations. Now we make it our aim in everything we do to please him. And because of the spirit, we can please him. Listen to the way 1 John puts it. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, which is what we just kind of learned in Romans 7, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So Christians are those who, yes, we still battle sin, but we are no longer enslaved to our sin, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live lives that are pleasing to God. Zooming out even further, even if I haven't convinced you, the point remains the same. The point is the law is not sin and the law does not bring death. Sin is the problem. The law just shows us how bad our problem is. Does the law bring death? No. Sin does. But the law is the weapon that sin uses. Sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment to stir up our flesh. So if I'm right, and this is not about us, what does it mean for us? Think a couple things. I think first, it reminds us of our past. Reminds us of our former slavery to sin. Reminds us of our former inability to do good, try as we might, desire as we might. Without the spirit, we could never be successful. 
It reminds us of our hopelessness apart from Christ, our hopelessness apart from the Spirit. And it warns us as well that the Jewish law or any and all law will not transform. The gospel is what changes hearts, not the law. The law is not the answer. The gospel is. Legalism does not bring life. The gospel brings life. 2 Corinthians 3 says, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. Again, John Bunyan, run, John, run, the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Chapter 7, verse 6, again, we've been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord or maybe you don't know if you know the Lord and you resonate completely with this chapter and you desire to change and you've tried and nothing's happening. Maybe you resonate with this frustration. I've been there. I've thought, you know what? I need to clean myself up. In fact, the way I got saved was by hearing the gospel, by going to church, but my motive was I need to clean myself up. I need to become a better person. That was the wrong reason came to church, heard the gospel preached and realized I don't need to clean myself up. I need to be saved. I'll never be able to clean myself up. I don't need to make over. I need heart surgery. I've got a heart of stone. And so maybe you're here and you resonate. You just can't get it together. You've tried and you cannot change. You feel this inability. There's good news here for you this morning. The law of the spirit of life is available. You can trust Christ here and now. He'll change your heart and he will set you on a trajectory and give you the power to overcome slavery to sin trust in Christ. You can do it right where you are. Next step, believer's baptism. We'd love to celebrate with you. If you've got any questions about that, we would love to come talk with you. Nothing we would rather talk about than the glorious freedom we find through Romans 6, union with Christ, and Romans 8, the gift of the Spirit.